the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, small animal sidekicks form a union. Not only can they talk, but they have demands. They want Prince Charming's head and full dental. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain intern Jonathan Grobert, and I'm joined today by my fellow explorer and intern, Ellie Heilman, from Elon University. Today, first, say hello, Ellie. Hello. Today, we have been sent to Mars to complete our duties of mapping out the star systems as far away as possible from Tony Daniel, who has allowed us to take a break from the rack. On the plus side, I am now two inches taller and on Mars. This time, we talk with Eric Flint and Walt Boys, the editors of the Grantville Gazette, a collection from the popular Ring of Fire universe. After an inexplicable cosmic disturbance sends a West Virginia mining town to the middle of the Thirty Years' War, history changes forever. In addition, we are joined by authors in the collection Bjorn Hassler, Carolyn Palmer, Gorg Huff, Griffin Barber, Paula Goodlett, Robert Waters, and Virginia DeMars. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Leiden Universe novel, Alliance of Equals. But first, here's the news. Another June means new fiction and nonfiction on Bain.com. And this month, we have a particularly great selection. Our short story is Homunculus by Stephen Lawson, the winner of the Jim Bain Memorial Short Story Competition for 2018, given out at the International Space Development Conference in partnership with the National Space Society. A lot can go wrong when you're conducting research on Titan. Even if you're comfortably situated in a ship orbiting Saturn, piloting a homunculus remotely on the surface. Stephen Lawson presents a unique version of the future of space exploration, in this year's Jim Bain Memorial Short Story Contest winner. And we have a non-fiction piece, Life Beyond Earth, by Kerry Hensley. Even before Giovanni Schiaparelli announced that he had discovered canals on planet Mars, we here on Earth have dreamed of making contact with alien life. And while we know that the Red Planet doesn't host any advanced civilization, that hasn't stopped humanity from searching for extraterrestrial life. The question is, where do we look? In this month's nonfiction essay, Kerry Hensley points us in what may be the right direction. Life Beyond Earth by Kerry Hensley and Humunculus by Stephen Lawson are now available in the Bain homepage and will be available on Bain eBooks in Free Short Fiction 2018 and Free Nonfiction 2018. This is part two of the interview discussing Grantville Gazette, Volume 8. The first part is available in last week's podcast. Hey, I want to welcome the editors and the authors of Grantville Gazette 8 to podcast. Hello, everyone. Hi there. Hello. 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 Hi, how are you? 
Hey, we have a great gang here of uh, of wonderful writers and all sort of helmed by the uh, creator himself, Eric Flint. Eric Flint's a modern master of alternate history fiction with three million books in print. And he's the author and creator of the multiple New York Times bestselling Ring of Fire series, which we will be talking a lot more about. With David Drake, he's written six popular novels in the Belisarius alternate Roman history series. And with David Weber, collaborated on 1633 and 1634, part of the um, part of the Great Fire series and, and the Crown of Slaves series within David Weber's honor verse. And Eric's latest solo Ring of Fire novel is The Ottoman Onslaught. You have one slated for next year, right, Eric? Yeah, it's uh, supposed to come out in April. That'll be super cool. And for many years, Eric was a labor union activist. Now he lives near Chicago. Walt Boyce is the editor of the Industrial Automation Insider magazine, the editor of the Grantville Gazette, more germane to our discussion. Now, a member of the 1632 Universe Editorial Board, formerly editor of Control Magazine and associate editor of Jim Bain's Universe, along with Joy Award, Walt is co-editor of Eric Blitz, Ring of Fire Press. Walt is an active member of CEFWA as well. So, um, Eric and, and Walt, um, how, what happens with these stories? So, Grantville Gazette 8 is a collection of stories uh, all set within this alternate history world that you, Eric, have created. So, for some of the listeners who have no idea what we're talking about, could you briefly recapitulate it? Um, yeah, we started the magazine uh, way back in 2003 as a, <clears throat> originally it was just an occasional, something we'd put together occasionally, and it was a semi-pro magazine. We didn't pay professional rates. Uh, something I suggested to Jim as an experiment, and he thought it would be interesting. He he didn't want to deal with it himself, so he lent me the money so I could set it up, and, and that's how the magazine got launched. In uh, 2007, we decided we could turn it into a professional magazine with a regular publication schedule and paying professional rates as established by Science Fiction Writers Association. So we did that in the first professional issue came out in May of 2007. Paula Goodlett was the editor at that point, and she continued to edit the magazine for, God, how many years was it, Paula? Total well, about 10, uh, but I started back with Gazette 3. Yeah. So don't ask me the years, because it's been a while. Yeah. So Paula edited it for many years, and then she basically you know, got tired of it. Uh, editing is is tires, tiring work, and besides, which she wanted to concentrate more on her own writing. So uh, she stepped back, uh, stepped down as the editor, and I asked Walt to take it over, and he did. That was about what Walt three years ago, two years yeah, ago, about yeah, three years ago. I think. Um, we started. What Jim Bain did was he thought it'd be an interesting experiment to publish the first issue of the magazine as an actual paperback to see what would happen. So we did that, and it sold quite well. So we continued doing it, except that the next uh, magazine, uh, which is the Granville Gazette 2, was started, went out in hardcover first, uh, and it, it did quite well. Uh, we did Gazettes 1, 2, 3, and 4, which were simply directly 
taking the magazine issue and turning it into a book. Uh, once we got through four, however, we realized this wasn't going to work because the magazine was just steaming ahead much, much faster than the books could be published. So starting with Gazette 5, we shifted to a different format, which is the more traditional best-of format. And from that issue on, 5, 6, 7, and 8, and it'll continue uh, like this, what happens is that we select stories from about 10 to 15 issues in a magazine and put those together as an anthology. Um, that's the system we use now. Uh, on a lighter note, we uh, we could talk about Caroline Carrie Palmer's story, M. Klein Fashion Dolls, which is about Barbies, or actually Barbie knockoffs, right, Carolyn or Carrie? Uh, Sorry. Whichever. Um, it's not really about Barbie dolls or Barbies. It's more about cloth dolls. Yeah. Um, well, it's actually about the women who who are. Figuring out how to uh, to make it in a in a world where there's some that, you know it's about the women who make the dolls of course really it's not about the dolls anyway go on I'm sorry it's, yeah it's, well it's about the daughter of a, a tailor who you know likes to make dolls they um in those days you know they didn't have fashion models or magazines and, and you know the dressmakers would make little wooden dolls and to, or bigger wooden dolls to display their work, their dresses, like Marie Antoinette, who got, you know, um, life-size models of what her wedding clothes would look like when she was getting married to Louis XVI. So it's basically, you know, developing, you know, a doll-making business. And before we go on, uh, tell, us what, tell us a little of your uh, biography, if you would. Um, I'm a lawyer. Um, I live in um, south suburbs of Chicago. Um, and how did you decide? To, uh, how did you get involved with the 1632.org uh, folks and become well, one? Well, my, my parents introduced me to the series, and then we went to um, the Minicon at Worldcon a couple years ago, and I put my story up on on the on the Bayon board and. You know, got it accepted. You know, and then I wrote my my second one, and which was um, the Vanity Fair, and then my I wrote my then my third one, which was about um, one of Louis the Louis the eighteenth Louis the fourteenth um, ministers to be. Huh. Now in. M. Klein Fashion Dolls, the main character is Margareth uh, Klein. Who, and, and what's interesting is the amount of everything is that we would think of as, as being basically cheap materials is so expensive. Um, and so you have to do so much bartering to get, right, back then. Oh, well, you still have to do it now. Everything, everything to make those kinds of dolls is expensive. I, I, I do it as a hobby. So I, I kind of uh, know how... You're writing what you know. Yeah. Why do they want to get a uh, fashioned-up Barbie doll to start with? Why does Margaret want this? Well, she lo she loves to do it, like sort of like me. I mean, she's me in 1632 series, really. 
except not her. She's not a lawyer. Uh, well, she is. She's trying to make a living off of this, right? Yeah, she just says, "Oh, I want to make a living out of my hobby." You know, what kind of stuff does have the uptimers brought with them that I can turn and that I can add to my hobby to make it into a business? You know, she wants to do something new and unique. And what is the the other strong woman character in here is Agatha Wolf. Who is she and what is she, what is she about? She sort of is in charge of her husband in a very big way. Yeah. Um she she's, you know, the um mother of the of the love interest. And you know, it was it was just like, well, I read all these stories about, you know, how how the social how the women were the social part of their husband's business. And well, you know how they say every behind every man is a great woman. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Let's by show some of those. Well, it's a it's a really mm-hmm. fun story. Some amazing, uh, some uh, some great period details, especially about the way that that marriages came about. Um, she, there had to be a marriage arranged here, right? Well, she arranges her own marriage at the, at the end. She, um, the guy, um, the boy comes to her because his mother, her father, his father had made, um, had bought knockoff Barbie dolls from a swindler, basically, and he's looking to get them dressed like his sister and her husband, so you know, to show off at the wedding. And Marjorie, she says, "Oh, I want to make Barbie dolls like, I want to make dolls like this, but not, you know, we can't find plastic." So, you know, they, the two of them find a way to sort of make wooden dolls that are like Barbie. So it's a really cool amalgam of, uh, of, of uptime and downtime that uh, ends up uh, sort of turning, uh, driving the story. It's fun stuff. Um, well, let's uh, talk about another uh, technological innovation, which is the airplane, which is something that Eric has been sort of careful with in various ways in, in controlling what people can do in the in the in the series. Um but apparently he has let Borg and Paula go on, on airplane technology um in the era, which is their story. Can you tell us can you guys tell us a little bit about that? Well, we wrote the arrow specifically to try and have a memorable airplane crash. Because people were complaining that all of the airplanes worked, but they hit, they didn't, and we had written previous airplane crashes, and no one remembered them. So we figured, hey, we'll do one that ain't nobody going to forget. And that's what we did with the Arrow. <laughs> and the Arrow is actually a sort of true story. There actually was a plane like that that had exactly exactly the same problem in a show back in the or at least so so family legend show. and the you know, the physics are all right there miss if you don't really understand how the physics works or just not paying a lot of attention to it and don't really get the very minor per square inch difference in air pressure and how that's affected the it it's easy to make a certain kind of mistake if you're going at the science from a different angle if you don't have the general background 
and wanted to sort of demonstrate that people were going to try this mm-hmm. stuff or not. Yeah. Um, before you uh, before you go on too much about the airplane, uh, can you just briefly recount? Uh, you and you and Paula have written two 1632 novels that have been published so far, right? No, three. 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 What are they? Kremlin Games and Vulgar Rules, which is the sequel to it, just came out. And uh, in between, a, uh, 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 we did uh, the Viennese Waltz. And, of course, we have podcast interviews. Alexander in here is not 1632, but it's a short novel. That's right. That's coming up, right? Oh, it's out. I'm sorry. It's coming up in mass market, yeah. <laughs> right. It's coming up in mass market. We we talked about that's this cruise ship that went back to uh, Greek and Egypt, right? right? Yeah, that was a wonderful, wonderful, uh, cool book. I hope we see more of that. So tell us about. All right, well, y'all tell us about tell us about the airplane and and who is trying to get this airplane built and who is Willem, our uh, our perhaps doomed uh, protagonist. Uh, wasn't it John George of Saxony, Gorg? Yeah, it was John George of Saxony who was paying for it. And the agent who was actually doing was basically a mercenary for hire. And he really didn't... There, There's some question as to whether he would have ever delivered the airplane to John George, even if it had worked. Uh, so basically there were a number of villains in this story. But there were also a couple of people who were just a couple of kids who really just wanted to fly and wanted to make it work and wanted to uh, figure out what was what had gone wrong. And it's all based on this one book that they have in the Grantville Library, right? Yeah. Well, it's partly based on one book that they have on in the Grantville Library, but there's also them figuring out and going for other sources, but primarily, yeah, there's the one book. Yeah, the the uh, I think it's actually one picture of uh, a French jet Delta, a French Delta fighter plane, I believe. But it's been a while since we wrote that one, so I could be wrong. <laughs> well, what is the what is the problem with developing an airplane? I mean, they got thrown back in time. What's the big deal? Why can't they just make an airplane and, and fly around? And Eric, um, of course, wants to. <laughs> okay, well, uh, they can, but they're going to crash a lot. Um, there's a whole set of knowledge. There's a whole knowledge base that uh, we have and only partially went back. Uh, honestly, I think that they could make more planes, but the big issues that are left are engine power. An aircraft, a heavier than aircraft, needs a lot of power for the amount of lift it gets. So you need a relatively powerful engine. And the other thing is air tends to be a little bit unforgiving. If you have a flat on the road, you probably pull off the side of the road and fix your flat. If, you have, if your engine goes out on the road, you pull over to the side and call uh, AAA. If your engine goes out at 10,000 feet, 
it's it's a slightly greater problem. But the truth is that in the early days of flight, there were a lot of crashes, but a lot fewer of them than most people think actually fatal. There were a lot of survived crashes because they were, in fact, flying very low and very slow compared to modern aircraft. They were like 500 in the air, and they were doing 60 to 80 miles an hour. And when the engine crapped out, they put it into a shallow dive, went, went somebody and landed in somebody's cornfield, and sometimes flipped the plane, but rarely blew it up and rarely shattered it into a 10,000 people pieces. There were a lot of crashes, but also a lot of survived crashes in the history of aviation. That's actually still true. If you look at the statistics, it's amazing. I think it's something like 80% of people survive plane crashes, even today, because most plane crashes are small planes. And, you know, it's the same kind of thing. It's you know, you do have the very dramatic ones where the you know jetliner just plows right into the ground. But uh, a lot of people still today survive crane crashes. What I one reason I put the story in the book is because I get a little frustrated with the writers and the series. People have heard me fulminate about this that things work too often and too well, and. Uh, especially high, comparatively high-tech stuff. So, you know, this is a story about a plane that crashed and kills the pilot. Okay, that'll go in, you know. Uh, we've got enough stories of planes that fly. I want a story of one that doesn't. Eric, um, all our planes crash. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. But, <laughs> but, you know, this cannot be emphasized enough, damn it. <laughs> And the other thing that's interesting about the story is the way that um, in a lot, of, as with a lot of 1632 uh, um, stories, is that they adapt the current abilities and the technology. So there's a lot of talk about whether to make this thing steam-driven, right? Yeah. Right. yeah. There actually was a steam-driven airplane. It, it, and uh, they create things in the stories, not just airplanes, but all kinds of things that are alternate ways of doing things that didn't actually happen in our world, but that could have. Yeah. So what were the, what were the, in this case, what was the the questions that the airplane, uh, that the, uh, that they had to deal with, um, given the limits of the, what could be made in that setting? So in this particular case, the arrow was all about getting an airframe that could go faster than the speed of sound. They didn't have the engines that could do it yet, but they wanted the airplane. Because the guy's goal, not John George's goal, but the guy who was actually building the airplane theoretically for John George, his goal was to be the fastest was to fly the fastest plane in the history of the world. And it was based on the fact that he was that he shared the name of uh, a French pilot, I think it was a French pilot, who was famous uh, for a particular air record. And I can't remember what the air record was because it was a long time ago. Do you remember, Paula? No. I remember when we did it and why we did it. I just don't remember the name. There's a lot of cool airplane lore in in the story for sure. You know, but we like yeah. murdering people, so. <laughs> <laughs> you 
there's a, this is less of a humorous uh, Huff and Goodlow story, and more it's more on a serious note than some of them have been. Is, would that be fair to say? Well, you have tragic circumstances, I guess. So, yeah. Um, another. Well, I mean, you know, somebody dying in an airplane crash is always going to be a tragic thing. Uh, so, yeah, we had to keep it kind of. You don't want to make light of that. Little solemn. Um, yeah. Walt, in your story, is just a dog. Uh, we are not forced into a tragic circumstances. We're talking about um, something from the future that, that people in the past want to recreate here as well, right? Yeah, this is this is actually the story of two love affairs, um, a man and his dog and a man and his girlfriend. Um, and it's a good thing that the dog likes the girlfriend. Um, basically, Duke Albrecht um, of, of Weimar goes to Grantville and was rummaging around in the library, and he finds a book and a calendar uh, by William Wegman, who's famous for photographing Weimar on her dogs. And Duke Albrecht convinces them to sell him the calendar and make copies of the book. And he rides back to Weimar uh, and goes to uh, his uh, his dog kennel. And he gets the, he gets the kennel master and says, look at these. These are Weimar honor dogs. These are dogs from Weimar, and we don't have any. Make me some. And... So the young man, the young man decides that he's going to go ahead and do it, and the rest of the story is involved in how he figures out how to make these beautiful gray dogs with yellow and blue eyes. Um, and at the same time, it's about him meeting a girl, falling in love with the girl, getting the marriage arranged with the two parents, um, having a child, having the dog, uh, uh, the the uh, female. Uh, Weimar honor the first one be the assistant mommy uh, for the, for the little kid and it turns out to be a very happy ending and Duke Albrecht gets his Weimar honors. The thing that is that that's kind of funny about this is that Joy Ward and I were daytime and I wanted to give her uh, a Christmas present but we weren't close enough yet so that I could give her expensive jewelry or anything like that. So I was talking to a friend of mine in the dog world, and she said, well, why don't you write her a story about a dog? And so I did. Um, she said yes, and I got paid for it, too. <laughs> so this was a, something like a proposal story? Well, in, in a way, it was a Christmas right. present, and I asked her to marry me shortly thereafter. Uh, and she loved it. She said nobody would ever, ever thought to write her a story before. Uh, and since she's a writer and an editor too, it just really apparently got her where she lives, and I'm really happy about that. <laughs> well, great. Um, one other great thing about the story that I like uh, particularly is, it, and that you can do in uh, in in Ring of Fire stories is this interplay between the nobility and the commoners. In this case, um, they like each other, but there's still that separation, right? Oh yeah. Um, and in fact, Duke Albrecht is one of the good ones. Um, you know, he doesn't he doesn't do things like John George of Saxony did, which was when he was down to the dregs of his beer, he would dump it on on the nearest servant's head. 
uh, or anything like that. He's a, he treats his people well, uh, and his people his people respond to it. Um, and there's also the there's also the committees of correspondence lurking in the background. Your main character is needs to get a job. I mean, I guess it's the same still today. One needs to uh, have some sort of setup before you you get married, but uh, he needs to get a job so he can ask the girl to marry him. And then the father probably wouldn't, uh, or the family probably wouldn't want her to marry, or she wouldn't want to marry without it, right? Well, yeah. And- um, so he sees the creation of this new dog breed um, as a way up in the in the structure of the uh, uh, of the hunt uh, for the Duke of Weimar, and he at the end of the story becomes um, the new hunt master uh, because he's made he, he's shown his initiative. He's created this new dog, even the, even writing even getting people to write to the Prince of Transylvania uh, so that he could get a couple of Vizsla, uh to breed into the, the, the mix. Um, and uh, so he shows a lot of initiative and he gets rewarded. Yeah, it's a, um, it's a lighthearted but uh, touching uh, tale. Um, great little story. Yeah, I, I, I had fun writing it. One of the things that I did and I, I keep encouraging writers to do is to stop writing about uptimers. There's not a single uptimer character in that story. There's millions of downtimers, and every every downtimer has a story. Uh, and there's only by the time this story is written, there's only about 2,400 or so uh, uptimers. Yeah. The effect of this little town coming back is continuing to ripple through the world. There's so many stories oh, yeah. that, uh, that that will create. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, all the way around the world. One of the things that I absolutely love about the series is that it isn't about Western Europe. We have stories uh, We have stories in the New World. We have stories in South America. We have stories in Africa. We have stories in India. We have stories in Japan. We have stories uh, in the Philippines. Uh we have stories coming out uh, about China. Um, we have stories about Thailand. Um, it, it it really is a world that we can all write about, and it doesn't have to be um, all about um, white Christian people uh, doing things um, uh, that they want to do. There, there's a lot of room in the series for people of all points of view and a tremendous diversity population. Well, Eric, do you and Walt have uh, kind of want to sum up uh, where are where are we going next? Uh, what's the what's up next with with the universe and what's well, up next with the Gazette? How is that shaping up? Well, we have a contract for another uh, Gazette anthology, which we haven't started working on yet but uh, so there'll be at least one more coming um uh the other anthology series we do are the ring of fire anthologies the difference between those and the gazettes is the gazettes are reissues of stories that appeared in the magazine the ring of fire anthologies those are new stories they're uh, they've never been published before um the next uh i'm trying to think i think the next book coming out in the series will be my um, 
next solo novel, which is called 1637, The Polish Maelstrom. And it's pretty much a direct sequel to The Ottoman Onslaught. And that is scheduled for publication in April. Uh, that's the next one I know for sure. Um, there are <laughs> several others in the works. Um, um, in addition to the ones I'm directly involved with, um, uh, Bain will be publishing a, um, uh, it's, it's actually two stories, two short novels by David Carrico. Um, that'll be coming out in a trade paperback. Uh, it'll have the title of Flight of the Nightingale, which is the uh, title of one of the two stories. That There's no publication date set for that yet, but it's done. Uh, Ivor Cooper and I have finished the rewrite that Tony wanted of... Um, a novel takes place in China called 1636, A China Venture. Um, she has to still read that and make sure that the rewrite did what she wanted to accomplish. Uh, but assuming it did, then that will be available whenever there's a slot. Uh, it's always hard to know. Uh, Chuck and I are working on um, the sequel, The Commander Cat, Trail of the West Indies. That's going to be called 1637, No Peace Beyond the Line. And I believe Chuck started already in a first draft, but I'm not certain of that. Um, if not, he's going to be starting it very soon. Um, I'm trying to think. And in the meantime, of course, the magazine continues to come out. One other thing I should mention is that we are uh, we started our own publishing house, which is called Ring of Fire Press, which we launched about four years ago. But it's really been taking off this year. And what we're doing with that press, among other things, is we have always published serialized stories in the Gazette. And those stories never get included in the Bain anthologies because the problem is they're too long. Uh, they would gobble up too much of the space. Uh, so what we started doing is, is is having them rewritten. They are almost always extensively rewritten and expanded usually, and then we're publishing them as uh, separate books. Uh, and we've now got about a dozen titles out. Um, uh, the last two that came out were Persistence of Dreams, uh, The Monster Society, Letters from Granau, uh, what am I overlooking? Walt? Uh, Next week we'll have the hunt for the red cardinal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Brad and Sue Signer, uh, uh, Walter Hunt and I left it unclear in uh, in Cardinal Virtues and novel sixty thirty six Cardinal Virtues whether recently was actually killed or not in the ambush. Uh, it's 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 not settled at the end of the book. And um, so Brett and Sue wrote a short novel that depicts whether he was or not. And that will be coming out quite soon. I don't, we don't have a specific date yet, but it's going to be. It's, it's basically in the last stages of, of production. Um, and it stars it stars uh, Cardinal Richelieu, uh, D'Artagnan, and the Three Musketeers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's that's story, which, uh, but so all of these are available at Bain eBooks as eBooks because we've got an agreement with the with the right. yeah, yeah, yeah. They get distributed through uh, through Bain. 
Uh, I think we're running a little behind getting them formatted it properly into Bain. Uh, so not all of them are up yet on Bain's website. But yeah, they'll all be distributed through uh, through subscriptions. Uh, if you want to buy it that way, you can get it through Amazon. You can buy it through the magazines that are the, the publishing house's own website. Uh, Barnes & Noble carries. Uh, we're we're getting this off the ground, so we're a little behind in certain aspects of it, but um, it's it's uh, it's actually coming together quite well. Sales have gone up dramatically this year uh, from where they were the first four years. Cool. Uh, I well, don't know well, when we'll start putting together the next Grapple Gazette anthology, but probably we'll start within a few months. Great. Um, if if somebody wants to get involved with this writing community, um, what is the process, Walt? Um, how to it's fairly easy if you uh, if you've read any of the 1632 mainline novels. Um, you sign on to Bain's Bar, uh, and you start uh, paying attention to uh, the 1632 tech conference and the 1632 Slush Conference. And when you have a story written, you post it in the 1632 Slush Conference, and you get workshopped. Um, we really do workshop it, and a lot of the people who have written other stories um, continue to be part of that community on the bar. Um, and eventually, um, a lot of people get to the point where I think the thing is publishable. It's a pro that that I think it's a professional piece of fiction, and then I buy it. Um, it's the only. It, 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 I like to say that it's the only criticism group anywhere in the world where the 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 prize is I buy your story, uh, and it's so far we are up to about a hundred and fifty two or 153 individuals who sold their very first published story to the Grantville Gazette. Yeah, I'm and among those. We're, yeah. I'm one we're of those really too. happy to keep doing it. Yep. Um, I, uh, uh, I'm, I'm really happy to keep doing it. I love getting new blood uh, because uh, it, it it's a whole new, different point of view. Um um, I'm publishing a story in uh, Gazette 78, which is the forthcoming Gazette, uh, called The Visible Dogs of Grantville, um, which is a continuation of a story called The Invisible Dogs of Grantville, um, which, uh, which takes you know those, um, those stiff leads with a collar on the end of it and you pretend to be walking a dog? Uh, it takes that to a, a, an absolutely ridiculous extreme, and it becomes very, very fun. Uh, and that's written by uh, a woman. That's written by a woman who just got interested in the series, and she's written two or three stories for us now. And we love it. Uh, we we love to get stories, and some of the writers are really very good. Um, the other thing, too, that the Gazette does is we have a corner that's left over from Jim Bain's universe. We call it the Universe Annex, and we publish non-1632 related uh, uh, science fiction and fantasy there. Um, and I'm working, t I'm working up to 
having one story, uh, an issue in that that's not 1632 related. And we every so often get people like Ed Lerner, who is a well-known science fiction author, uh, who sends us a story for the Universe Annex. He's actually publishing a, a, a there, there are a series of stories uh, through it. We published how many? Of them? One or two? I think one so far. I've never I think we're up to three and... now. Two. I think we're well, up to no, he's three, written but... the third one, yeah. Yeah. Or he's about to, uh, to finish it. And I'm hoping that I'm hoping that he gives it to us so that we can collect them and publish them all. Talking to a bunch of other authors like that, because the Gazette the Gazette is a professional venue, and it's one of the few um, that will take. Um, um, introductory offerings from a brand new writer. Yeah, well, that's that's very cool, and a, it's a wonderful experience to uh, to go through. And it sounds like that if you write a talk story, it might be the key to Walt's heart. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, Robert Robert Waters knows that. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, uh, we're 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 uh, about to publish a, a novel of his called The Masks of Mirada, um, which has a very large mastiff named Felfang as the second lead character. Uh. That's cool, um, Eric. Can I ask you one more uh, just to reflect? On, this has got to be coming up on twenty years or so. I mean. T- uh, 1632 came out in 2000, which means you probably started writing it in 1998, right? Uh, I wrote it in the... Uh, I did the initial research, uh, by which I mean I went to uh, Mannington, West Virginia, which is a town that is the model for Grantville. I went there at the end of March 1999, and then I started writing the book in the summer of 99, had it finished by the fall of 99. It was published in February of 2000. So we are now 18 years and and change after the publication of the first book, yeah. And getting close to 20 years since I sort of started the project, yeah. Did you have any conception or dream of what it would become, or did you no, know it no, all along? No, 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 no. I wrote, I wrote 1632. I, I intended it to be a standalone novel, just, you know, one-off, and then I'd go on to something else. And um, the truth is, at every stage in the way, along the way, it, 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 there's not like there's some grand master plan. It's just that you know, this universe and, and the community around it keeps expanding, and we get to a certain point, and we say, well, let's try this, see what happens. Uh, that's how the magazine got launched. That's how the publishing house got launched. It's how a number of it, the, how the Ring of Fire anthologies got started, uh, where we bring in new authors in addition to established ones. Um, it's uh, most of the... Novels in the series are co. I, I'm I'm one of the co-authors of most of them, and but uh, most of my co-authors are not were not established writers. They're people who came up sort of out of the ranks, I guess you'd say. Um, that's true with Virginia. has done two novels with me. Uh, Paul and Gorg have done three novels with me. Griff's done one novel with me. Um, and we're working on that um, next one. And we're going to be starting a sequel. Um, uh, you know, there's other, you know, David Caracol's another one. So it just keeps expanding, And but there's never been any uh, 
you know, it's not like I sat down 20 years ago and plotted all this out, no. <laughs> no, I had no idea this was going to happen. Well, it certainly has become something uh, really special in publishing and just in general. Um, a lot of people getting a lot of satisfaction out of this. The book is Grantville Gazette 8, edited by Eric Flint and Walt Boys. And uh want to thank Eric and Walt. I want to thank Bjorn Hassler, Carrie Palmer, uh, Gork Huff, Paula Goodlett, Griff, Griffin Barber, uh, Robert Waters, Virginia DeMars, and uh, Jonathan, who's probably still listening, uh, our, our little intern. Hi. Hi. Um, thank you all for uh, for sitting in and, and giving us uh, your take on the stories and giving us a little background on this, this great uh, new book. Thanks, everyone. That was part two of the interview. Part one is in last week's podcast. This is another entry in Alliance of Equals, a Leaden Universe novel by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Beset by the angry remnants of the Department of the Interior and challenged at every turn by opportunists on their new homeworld of Sherbleek and low on funds, Clan Corville desperately needs to reestablish its position as one of the top trading clans in known space. To this end, master trader Sean Yosgalen and Corville's premier trade ship Dutiful Passage is on a mission to establish new business associations and to build a strong primary route that links well with existing loops and secondary routes. But reestablishing trade and preserving the lives of the few remaining members of the clan aren't all of Corval's problem. Matters come to a head as Dutiful Passage, accustomed to being welcomed and feeded at those ports on its call list, finds itself denied docking and blacklisting while agents of the DOI mount armed attacks on others of Corval's traders under the very eyes of port security systems. Traveling with Dutiful Trader on this unsettling journey is Patty O'Scalen, the master trader's heir and his apprentice. Patty is eager to make up for time lost due to Corville's unpleasantness with the Department of the Interior, but she is also keeping a secret so intense that her coming of age and perhaps her very life is threatened by it. And here is the latest entry in Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Alliance of Equals. Chapter 34 Heel Space the fogs of heel space boiled around them, tasting of molasses and rust. Sean grabbed handfuls of the stuff, shaping them into a thick circle. Tarona Rusk on the inside, himself on the outside. He saw a flicker of flame and steel, the tip of the lash, so he thought. He saw the fog receive it and encompass it. The flame snuffed out. You cannot keep me here, Tarona Rusk said, and now he could taste her anger. I cannot keep you here long, he admitted, letting her feel the weight of the truth he told her. But I believe I may keep you here long enough. She eyed him from inside the circle. Long enough for what, I wonder, the death of your body tied to the showroom chair? That was a problem, Sean admitted to himself, 
If the other members of her team arrived while they were thus engaged, they might well solve the problem of himself in their preferred manner. Well, he had told her true. After all, he could not hold her long. Speed had been at the heart of this plan since its formulation. I only need hold you long enough to heal you, he said, for a healer was bound in honor to explain his intention to a client. I am not in need of healing, she said. He tasted her amusement and the sudden acrid bite of fear. Sadly, you are in error, he answered, and brought his entire attention to the knot that enclosed her pattern. The steps were measured and careful. Paddy's palms were sweating, and the air was getting somewhat rank inside her bowl. Perhaps she should have made windows, after all, or thought to install a fan. Moving as silently as she could, she got her feet properly in place so that she was centered. She must assume that they would discover her with this patient method. She knew too little about her hiding place, she thought, too late. It must, after all, have substance, even if it were invisible to the eye, as the man who had held father's gaming token had intimated. Father, after all, had not given up his substance when he had become invisible on Andiri port. She wasn't entirely sure if it was possible or advisable to become insubstantial. The footsteps were moving closer to her position near the buffet. One more pass, she thought, no more than two. And suddenly, the world rang around her. The blackened threads tangled around her core were links. Two dozen links, more, crushed together until they were all but indistinguishable from each other. That was bad, but there was worse. The links were live, input links, as a healer might establish with a client who was very ill or in crisis. The links would feed energy, calm, forgetfulness, whatever might be needed to the client until a fuller intervention could be done. Wrapped as they were around Tarona Rusk's core, they at once protected her and sustained her. She might be a powerful Dramliza, but no small part of her power was stolen from others. Many hands make the work light, healer, Tarona Rusk mocked him. The fog circle was thinning, he saw. He thickened it with a thought. All those links, Sean considered them closely, input links. He might break them with little danger, he thought. If he would heal Tarona Rusk, he needed to reach her core. And he had very little time. Captain Mendoza, this is Langlast Portmaster Jonathan Els. Also on com is Captain Tario Soup, Customs Boats Commander-in-Chief. Portmaster, Priscilla said calmly calmly, as if the glow of Sean's essence against the universe wasn't fading away into nothing. Captain, why has the dutiful passage been targeted in this manner? 
If we have unwittingly broken law or custom, we will make amends. Bombs are really quite unnecessary. Yes, ma'am, said the voice she assumed must belong to Captain Soup. Bombs are usually unnecessary in my experience. And may I say, ma'am, that my office and the port of Langlast appreciates your very great restraint in dealing with them. I've reviewed the logs of our previous inspections, and I assure you, ma'am, we have found nothing, repeat, nothing at all, to warrant such an attack as has been made against your vessel. I offer you my personal apologies, ma'am, in addition to the apology of my office. This episode should never have happened. And yet, Priscilla said, it did happen. I wonder why, and I also wonder if it will happen again. Again? Captain Soup's horror was plain. Captain Mendoza, it should have never happened once. To suppose that it could happen again, well, there you have your ship to care for. I'll tell you, ma'am, it was politics. Politics in my own office, and it has been dealt with, ma'am. My second came to be of the opinion that Dutiful Passage was liable to become aggressive, and he acted on his own recognizance to ensure the safety of the port. As he saw it, ma'am. I will add, Captain Mendoza, Portmaster Ells broke in, that this is not an official Langlast port position. The officer in question was acting quite on his own without having spoken of his concerns or cleared his operation with either his own commander or with my office. As Captain Soup has said, this episode should never have happened. As portmaster, I assure you, it will not happen again. The port stands ready to make reparations should your ship have taken any damage from this unauthorized action on the part of one of our agents. Thank you, Priscilla said. I am very pleased to hear that steps have been taken to ensure that this sort of thing does not happen again, either to the passage or to another innocent ship. In the meantime, sirs, there is the matter of the mines rejected by our shields, which are now loose and seeking hulls to which they may attach. Yes, ma'am. We've got work boats rising, and we've diverted those customs boats already in orbit to the task of picking those little devils up, Captain Soup assured her. Portmaster's office will be issuing a general alert regarding the bombs, and our response plan, Portmaster Ells added. Captain Soup and I wanted to speak with you and assure you of your safety and your continued welcome at Langlast. If you have any other concerns, please don't hesitate to call this office. Thank you, Priscilla said, watching Sean's pattern flicker and fade. In fact, there is something else. Well now, what have we here? The first voice said, very close at hand. Footsteps approached. I see nothing, the second voice said. Nor do I, but observe. The bowl rang again, and Paddy's head with it. 
She drew a deep breath and waited. She had decided that waiting was the best thing she could do. Let them make the first move. She would be centered and ready for it. And if she had to kill them, she pushed the thought and the feeling of queasiness away from her and concentrated on now. She was a pilot of Corval. She would do whatever was necessary to survive. There was no time for finesse, and if healer heads rang with their unexpected and hasty liberation, it was not, Sean suspected, the worst that had come to them in the service of Tarona Rusk. Now, however, came the challenge, for her pattern was an abused and misshapen thing, showing the marks of fire and such ruthless hacking as he had seen before in his brother Valcon's pattern. He had the assistance of a clutch turtle when he had undertaken to heal Valcon, and even then, flinging his whole heart and all his skill into the task, he had not returned Valcon to himself. He had repaired, he had patched, he had given surcease restored balance and strengthened the capacity for joy. What he had not been able to do was to restore his brother to the state he had occupied before he had been tortured and broken. The memory of those things could not be eradicated, ought not be eradicated, for knowing that there was such evil afoot helped keep him vigilant for himself and for Corval. The weight of those memories meant that Though his brother assuredly was a Valcon Yosfelium, he was not the Valcon Yosfelium who would have been, had there been no such memories upon him. He had not known Tarona Rusk before the tragedy of her training had come to her, but his inner eyes traced the familiar path of destruction. For Valcon, coming to the work fresh and unwounded, he had managed a nearly complete healing. To this healing, he came diminished. The Dramley's killer's kiss had drained a portion of his energy. The wounds to his body weakened his will. Yet, this woman needed him, no less than Valcon had needed him. For this woman, for this healing, he would do all, he would do everything that he could. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and the podcast theme composer Ruth Jukowitz. And a timey-wimey temporal handshake to editors Eric Flint and Walt Boys of the Granville Gazette and authors in the anthology Bjorn Hassler, Carolyn Palmer, Georg Hoff, Griffin Barber, Paula Goodlett, Robert Waters, and Virginia DeMars. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars.